Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Kincaid and Breckenridge, Newstalk 770, our Highlights podcast. We had a lot to talk about Uber today in the aftermath of this vote at City Council. Uh, City Councilor Evan Woolley joined us. He was essentially the lone dissenting voice, and we got to come up with something better. And then we talked to John Iveson of the National Post about uh, all the red ink on the budget as, that the uh, the Liberals are going to bring us next month. We're talking like 25 maybe even $30 billion in deficit this year. You can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge weekday mornings, 930 to 1230 on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. Uh, John Iveson from the National Post is going to talk to us about uh, liberal deficits coming up at 1030. Um, Lisa Raitt, Bonnie Raitt's sister? Lisa Raitt, who very well could. <laughs> maybe. maybe. Um, what do you think? Is this fair ball? She could be the next leader? She'd probably put her, her throw her hat in the ring, don't you think? I suspect she might, yeah. Why? What'd she do? Well, she stood up and she told Bill, uh, Bill Morneau, I nearly called him Bob Morneau, Finance Minister Bill Morneau, we gave you a surplus, you are eroding it. And uh, she has a point. Yeah, but I, th- I think at the same time, I mean, at least what we're seeing so far uh, is, is a big drop-off in revenue driving this, as, as opposed to an increase in spending, which is certainly part of it. Now, come budget time, we're going to see a lot more on the spending side, which is going to drive that deficit up even further. Uh, but revenues are dropping off, and uh, that would be the case if, if the conservatives had won. So it's a question of, well, what do you do in response to that? Do you ride it out? Do you cut spending to, to uh, you know, fill that void? So well, we'll get into that after 1030. All right, let's get into the uh, Uber situation with uh, Councillor Evan Woolley from Ward 8. Uh, Councillor Woolley, thanks for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So you're the lone guy who decided uh, to try to talk some sense into that city council yesterday. Well, you know, we, we were almost across the finish line. We, we've been working on this for a number of years um, with a lot of different stakeholders around the table. Um, we were really, really close, I think, um, and uh, we, we passed the bylaws and the, the, the bylaw as is. And unfortunately, I mean, and as we've seen with Uber's decision today, uh, it wasn't quite enough. So obviously disappointing. I don't think it's, this is done and over with, but I, I think there's more to do. Okay, so explain where, where you were at and, and, you know, where the rest of council was at, because you proposed a motion yesterday that, you know, would have, would have changed these, these amendments to the bylaw. Yeah, so, so the whole, the, the whole way that companies like Uber can be successful is by signing up lots of drivers, right? So the average Uber driver drives for about 10 hours a week. Uh, on the other end of that, you think a taxi cab, they drive about 170 hours a week, you know, two, to- two 12-hour shifts. Uh, these are cars that are on the road professionally. Uber drivers generally are someone that needs to, you know, buy a computer, pay an un- unexpected cost. They're not using it a lot. And so what we need to do is without discounting safety and security for people that are going to use the service, we need to create as few barriers as possible for people entering the system. There was a couple of points where I thought we could have done a better job uh, and that were really, really critical for Uber um, uh, to enter the market uh, um, effectively uh, that we didn't meet. So, Okay. Uh, I want to ask you about some of those points in just a sec, but... Um when, when we say Uber, by the way, are we using Uber as a surrogate for all ride-sharing? I mean, have we heard from other ride-sharing apps in this? Yeah, you know, and, and, and 
transportation network companies is the is the broader frame to do it, but people know this, right? So we talk about Uber, which just it, it's kind of like Kleenex, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's the it's 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 what's been here and what's operated. There are other companies, absolutely, uh, on a whole different range of scales, but we've been in high level talks with them. But Uber is the one that has been uh, looking to enter Calgary has actually very briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when I when I refer to Uber, I'm referring to this next generation of kind of transportation companies. Okay, but I mean, further to the point of my question, then did Lyft or did any of these other companies contact, uh, make any sort of contact with the city and say, Uber's got a point or we're interested in following this story? Well, that was part of my frustration yesterday is is that we we heard comments uh, from administration saying, well, yeah, we've been talking to other companies and they're totally fine with these bylaws. And I was like, well, really? Which, which ones? And, uh, and well, high-level conversations have have potentially happened um we don't know exactly who that's been with so all right so that it's there there's a hope that other companies might might come in and and meet that demand but we don't know yeah i mean we we talked about a company uh, the company that was brought up was keys please but remember that keys please is we're talking like 50 50 ish drivers very small amounts of drivers the the the, the way that uh, that companies like Uber can be successful is by having thousands of drivers, right? Um, because all of those the, those incremental hours of a guy a guy who has a personal car and wants to drive ten hours a week, you need a lot of those. You need a lot of those ten hour a week drivers in order for you to make up an, an effective system, right? Right, and then so to that point, then uh, this is where the, there's barriers to entry is for those particular individuals. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I got, uh, you know, uh, and, and again, you got to recognize that we got the police background checks, which I think are critical, and some of those steps I think are a, are a non-starter. But in terms of uh, of the costs to the driver uh, in entering the system, um, you know, five six hundred bucks is 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 a lot of money. Okay, what's the two hundred and twenty dollars? So the two hundred and twenty dollars is that flat fee. So that's the flat fee. Um, for the to register with the city of Calgary, right? Okay. But then you've got all of your inspection fees and other fees on top of that, right? Okay, but see, to me, I look at the inspection fees and the criminal background check fees and stuff, and I don't know that they're terribly onerous. Isn't the criminal background check something like thirty dollars? The one the city was proposing. Yeah, yeah, and I'm fine with that. Again, right. again, uh, again, this is about this is a balance of how do you create an effective regulatory system, right? But keeping it as minimal as possible, but and the, so the free. So when you add up those five hundred bucks, you might say, uh, "Yeah, well, that 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 seems all in fair, all fair and fine." But if we can do it for less expensive, uh, and still have the same the same effective system in place, why would we not want to do that? Okay, so why would the city then think that it's fair to have a two hundred twenty dollar flat fee for all Uber drivers when not all Uber drivers uh, conduct their business in the same way? Uh, well, I mean, that, I mean, part of the challenge that I think administration has that uh, with between Uber is that they hadn't been negotiating it enough around what what exactly that was. Most of the other effective fee structures that they have is is a flat fee, and then you do like a per trip or a per kilometer cost on that. So if you're an Uber driver that's driving a ton, you pay more of a registration fee because you're making more money. If you're an Uber, Uber driver that's not not driving as much, you pay a little bit less. And that's what I was hoping that they, w- they would have brought in. It would have reduced some of the cost for some and actually increased it for others. The whole point that we're trying to get here, though, is, is that, uh, and, I, and I don't think they, they did it quite as well in Edmonton, is that we need a cost recovery system, right? So we don't want to have the taxpayer paying the administrative costs of the system. It's got to be cost recovery. Yeah, okay, so explain that. What, what are the costs? Um, so there's, I mean, just I, I, I don't have all the details in front of me, but uh, just to administer it, right? So you need people and staff and 
the general uh, paperwork that you, you the, the paperwork in administering the system internally here, right? Yeah, but we have. I mean, we obviously have a staff. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're going to need more. Uh, well, I mean, it, it depends on. So, I mean, if it's if you got five thousand drivers that come onto the system. Uh, it, and again, this is this is why this kind of sliding scale would have worked really well, right? So that you don't just have a, a an overly, uh, you know, you don't have this flat fee where you got 5,000 drivers and all of a sudden you've got more than cost recovery, right? Um, if we do, if we make these systems as simple, whether it's online registration and all of these things as efficient and effective as possible, the cost to administering the the, the service uh, will be will be lower, right? Yeah. Can you can you describe the cost? Uh, recovery uh, component in the taxi industry to us. Oh um, yeah, I mean, so so taxis pay taxis pay a flat fee, but we know that one taxi cab is basically being driven 170 hours a week, right? So you can you know exactly how much you're going to have to administer based on a very set fee. The pro, the the difference with Uber drivers again is is that you can have many many thousands of them, but they're not driving very much, and that's why that sliding scale fee matters. Uh, otherwise, I mean, are, are there parts that you were prepared to support? Other aspects of, of these changes that you were were okay with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we so we know we we already know that even with the 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 bylaws in place, uh, we still got to wait on the province on two big important issues, and that issue is insurance, and the other issue is is what class of license do they have? So. Um, Again, this is the big challenge with Uber is, is that are we considering an Uber vehicle or an Uber driver a commercial thing or a commercial uh, vehicle, or do we consider it a personal vehicle that's the odd time being used for a commercial use? And that's really uh, kind of that gray area that's been created. Um, but I think is something in the, in the kind of the sharing economy as we look at Airbnbs and all of these different things in kind of this uh, generational shift that we're, we're, we're seeing both in the workforce and in, in, in kind of this, this sharing economy. Okay, I'm glad you got there, uh, Evan, because I have a few questions. You're one of the younger, uh, if not the youngest person on council. You probably are the youngest person on council, aren't you? Yeah, by, by a decade. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> so what are your constituents telling you when you talk about this? So, I mean, so we, we through... Through the invention of the car, and I don't want to get too high level here, we had we had a we had a car we had a car dominated society, right? And and in Calgary, effectively, we still have that. The car remains uh, 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 an obviously dominant force in in getting around. But we're seeing a change in that, and whether you you like it or not, and again, this doesn't have to be a, a for cars or against cars argument. It's just a fact of of kind of a transportation revolution that we're seeing that the driver's license applications are down across the board. Kids are using their disposable income in different ways now. So in the 50s, you think of the, the kid who was shining, uh, you know, the hubcaps on his car in that Norman Rockwell kind of commercial. But nowadays, kids are buying tech and they're buying other stuff. So they're using their disposable income in different ways, which means they're going to get around in different ways. And that's kind of like they use Uber, they use car to go, they take public transit, they walk, they drive, um, and they use kind of transportation in a whole bunch of uh, really uh, different ways. Right. So understanding that, is this uh, uh, trying to use a uh, Bronze Age solution, uh, uh, Bronze Age methods to come up with a 21st century solution? Is that what we saw yesterday? Somewhat. And again, I, I, don't, I, I still want to tip the hat to our administrator. They've done a lot of work on this. I mean, this, has been, this isn't just like a challenge in Calgary. This is a, this is a challenge that uh, cities across the world are dealing with as we've seen this kind of big generational transition in, in how we get around. And it, it is. We have kind of new models overlapping with old models. And so undoubtedly, you're going to have 
uh, it's going to be hard to negotiate this. But uh, I think you know I think we've done a pretty we've done a pretty good job. We haven't had taxi cab drivers ripping ripping their shirts off, or we haven't seen uh, any kind of like physical conflict in the city, which is goes a long way in in in, in giving props to our administration in terms of this negotiation. It's been it's been very. Uh, thoughtful. Okay. Well, does this change in any way the way that the taxi industry operates, or does it mean you know the possibility of, of new entrants or or more taxis on the road? Because it seems to me if we don't get any of these ride sharing companies, that we're essentially stuck with the status quo. Yeah. Well, the, the the brilliant thing that we did in terms of the negotiation from our administration with this is that in other cities haven't is that actually taxi cabs themselves can operate uh, with the same plat- technological platforms with, as companies like Uber. So we have floating fare rates across the board now, right? Other cities have tried to really separate the two, but we've leveled the playing field incredibly for taxi ca- cab companies by allowing them to develop or purchase their own apps and, um, and compete with these with companies like Uber and you've seen companies uh, you know companies like Checker I, I don't know if you take I take cabs a bunch and they got a really great app and it's super efficient super effective uh, they're going to be they're going to be coming they're they're upgrading that app as we come along and so we will see our taxi companies and it's going to be kind of that you adapt or die and um and, uh, but I think we'll, we'll see our cap. We, we need a healthy ta- uh, taxi industry in, in town here, right? No, and it no. will remain. Yeah. Okay, no, but no. what about the quotas? And what about the money that, that's shelled out for plates? Is that going to remain in place? And is there any talk of, of compensating taxi companies for these changes? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's somewhat of a false market that we created, right, over all of these years in terms of our release of plates. Um, it, it, it's it's going it, to, I mean, we'll, we'll see. We'll, taxis still have the leg up in terms of accessible cabs. You can't. You can only only taxi cabs will you be able to hail from the street. Um, you can't call Uber, so there's a whole generation of people that still call taxi cabs, and so there are some there are some um, some some specific opportunities that cabs have that uh, that they uh, that the Ubers of the world don't. Right, so Ubers of the world you have it is only booked through an online app. So taxi cab companies do have a leg up on that. Um, we're looking we're going to watch and see how this flows around the release of more plates. Um, yeah, it's going to be it'll be interesting to watch. Um, do, when you talk about how you, you open it up so taxi companies can have the same sort of technological platform that uh, a rideshare application has, uh, does that open it up to surge pricing in taxis? So, I mean, the surge pricing is, is obviously one of the, the downfalls of this, but I mean, it's a, it's it, it, the more competitive and the more uh, the more people on the system we have, the more we can beat that surge pricing, right? Now, hang, hang, gonna... Wait, wait, walk it back here for a second. It, yeah. Surge pricing is not a downfall to all of this. I get that people don't like certain things to cost more than yeah. other times that they use it. Yeah. But people buy bottled water when it comes out of the tap for <laughs> pennies a glass. So no. But but the thing about surge pricing is that that's a market indicator of how popular the service is. That's a supply and demand solution. So I, I understand that Uber uses surge pricing to uh, try and ins- get more people to come out there and drive because their prices are higher and it's more worth their while. But if you've got a regulated taxi industry that's kind of had their ways with these bylaws here, mm-hmm. then why wouldn't they just say after a Flames game, for example, oh, uh, surge pricing's in effect, despite the fact that there's a huge lineup of cabs out in front of the dome? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the, we'll have to figure that outside of the dome. Whether there's people will be booking Ubers outside of the dome, right? And so, well, like, can't, like no, that's the point is that if you've only got if you've made it so that only cabs can operate, then they can do whatever they want with the rules. Yeah, but if if you know what, when when you're when you're in a restaurant and you book in, you know, the the hailing system and the taxi stand piece 
they, they get the hailing. But you can book, if you've used Uber in other cities, you can sit in the restaurant, book your Uber, walk outside, and it's sitting there waiting for you, right? Um, but there's, again, it's, a, it's an imperfect system. But with the surge pricing, what I was talking about was, you know, that we're not going to see, you're not going to see, you know, $5,000 trips for four blocks kind of thing. That, that's the kind of uh, thing that we've got to watch out for. But that said, when you get in, when you use these apps, you get a fair estimate, and it's got to be within those fair estimates. And so uh, oftentimes it's the guy who's had, you know, a few beers too many and didn't really have a look at what the ride was going to cost him, where we've hit those kind of problems. All right. All right. Well, I guess we'll see what happens in, in practice now with these new yeah. rules. But in terms of city council's job here on this, that that's it. It's done. The decision's been made. The, the, the debate's over. Well, I, I hope not. I mean, I mean, I, I think that, uh, that there will be pressure on council uh, from people that want to see uh, companies like like Uber operate uh, to to come back to the table to to figure out these last couple of touch points. I mean, the nego- you know, that any time they want to come back to the table or we want to get people around the table to figure out how we can make this work, that can happen. And new bylaws or updated or uh, adjusted bylaws can be brought forward. But council did make a decision that, that they were happy uh, just with the way things were now, um, unfortunately. <laughs> Evan, thanks. Uh, <laughs> final words, a good one. Evan, thanks so much for your time today. Really thanks appreciate well, it. All right, yeah. take care. That's Evan Woolley, uh, city councillor uh, for Ward 8. Um, look, I'm not. I'm not happy. I think it sets us back. And frankly, I'm really tired of uh, of the fact that my right to get a ride with whomever I want has been kind of quashed here. Right? They took some pieces off the table. I don't. I don't dig that. Well, you know, it's funny because um, I was just uh, on on Twitter earlier with uh, Diane Collier-Cart. Uh, Rick Bell had tweeted his column that says, you know, Uber says adios, and Diane Collier-Cart says, well, adios for now. And so I said, well, hang on, you, you think Uber's bluffing here? That's what the city's doing? They're just trying to call Uber's bluff? Because if they're not, I mean, that seems like a risky bet. And so her response to me was to send a list of all these other ride-sharing companies, or TNCs, transportation network companies, as, as the city calls them. So, well, which of those are coming to Calgary? Still waiting for an answer. I tweeted a cat video. Those are good, too. Thank you. you Let's, uh, <laughs> sure. We'll take a break right here. I'm going to read that uh, conversation between you and uh, Councillor Diane Collier-Cart during this commercial break. We'll come back. We'll continue this conversation about Uber and the city. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770-974-8255. You can text us as well, 770-770. Uh, this text here, Roger, this uh, guy says, I used to be with the uh, TLAC committee. TALAC, yep. The TALAC committee. And uh, our cabs cannot do surge pricing. We still have a fee schedule, still have maximums to protect the public. The fee schedule is reviewed uh, and updated uh, according to the cost of living. Yeah, that's that's why I asked the question. I mean, if, if the bylaws change things and allow taxi drivers to operate on these platforms, does it allow them to change their pricing structure as well? But maybe not. <clears throat> Here's another text message. This is the same as secondary suites. See, this is what I'm, I'm getting really tired of, is that every time, like, where's the line, right, where somebody comes into town with a novel solution to a problem that we're having, which is getting people from A to B? I mean, Rob, you've been in this game for a long time. Have you ever in your history as a broadcaster done a segment on the radio about how difficult it is to get a taxi cab on Christmas Eve or at Christmas party season or on New Year's Eve? Pretty sure I have. So here comes a solution now that says, hey, we got a way that this new generation of people can use their vehicles. And you've got people going, oh, I don't trust 
someone I've never heard of picking me up, I won't use Uber. Then you've got people like me who go, yeah, that sounds fine. You know, so like, why, where is my right to get from A to B by whatever means I choose in, in this entire conversation that it needs to be regulated at City Hall as though I can't regulate this matter myself? I have a right to live in someone's basement that's not up to code. If I can make the decision that it's worth it for me to save a couple hundred dollars to stay in a place where I can't crawl out the window, I have a right to put my life on the line for affordable housing. And I get it that the city doesn't want to have to read these stories in the newspaper. I don't give a rat's derriere about that. We should have a right to buy Ford Pintos that explode when they're rear-ended. That's the, that's the society that I want to live in. Well, you know, I mean... Yeah, obviously these these things are are simple, right? And and everyone agrees on I, I think the insurance thing. Everyone agrees on the criminal background check. Everyone agrees on on the safe vehicles. Uh, you know, I, it seems to me that city council is making mountains on a molehill, molehills because it's as though they're the only ones who've ever thought of this, right? I mean, Uber already has the the criminal background check. That was already their policy. I mean, Edmonton requires it, too. So the notion that that Calgary is addressing something that's not being addressed is is just simply not the case. You know, even with the vehicles, I mean, your your vehicle has to be, I think it's, what, 2012 or 2013? You have to have a, a newer vehicle to begin with. And again, these are vehicles that people drive right now, right? If we're worried about unsafe vehicles, well, these are people's cars. These vehicles are on the road, right? So, um, again, I mean, we're just, we're, I don't think we're really addressing public safety here. I think we're just throwing up obstacles to, to prevent this from happening. Yeah, and and, and for what? And for what, what end? Because everybody who thinks that this is just the city in bed with the taxi companies, I mean, man, there's enough fanning of those flames going on here by the process. I mean, if you're trying to make an argument that no, 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 we really just, we just really have the citizen safety at heart here. It says nothing to do with our allegiance to a cartel that we've been propping up for far too long in this city. No, no, no. I mean, those conspiracy theorists need not look uh, much farther than uh, than the public record at City Hall. Well, it's just funny. Then why aren't we doing this for for Airbnb? Right? Where's the the months and months of of back and forth with Airbnb? Where's the city administration report on Airbnb? Where's the bylaw to require Airbnb renters to pay hundreds of dollars to the city every year and to to have their homes inspected? And to to buy new assur- insurance and and all of these other things. Where where is that? Why isn't that happening? We come back uh, from the uh, this little breather, which we'll call the news to ten thirty. Uh, we're going to talk to John Iveson. No, we you should talk him. to Don Iveson. Hey, Don, what did you guys do right? <laughs> yeah, that's a different guy. Uh, relevant, but still relevant in this conversation. Indeed, we're gonna, John Iveson. Who, by the way, and I just want to put point this out, and and Rob uh, put put this round in the chamber. Um, I, I think John Iveson is going to remind us of Alan, the guy who called up to talk about his icy laneway, and the uh, solution uh, that he used, which was Kayla. Interesting prediction. All right, uh, so John Iveson is going to join us. We're going to uh, go through uh, what's been going on in Ottawa the past couple of days. Uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau getting out in front of uh, what is going to be a pretty miserable budget, it seems, that comes out in a month by talking about, hey, $18 billion worth of deficits. But that's not the only number. We'll get into it more with uh, Iveson from the National Post. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. So you heard the news today, the, the federal finance minister announcing that this um, this fund that Ottawa has, or this program uh, Ottawa has, is going to uh, benefit Alberta to the tune of $251 million. 
uh, I guess, help uh, soften the blow of these uh, tough times. Maybe they'll find uh, new and different ways to take that money back from us at some point, uh, maybe through <laughs> a new carbon tax, for example. But uh, in the meantime, it's, it's uh, something. I guess, uh, but it, it's also possible too that once we see the new federal budget next month, that there's going to be um, more spending announced, maybe more infrastructure spending, uh, and some of that may be coming Alberta's way. We did also learn this week, of course, that uh, the, the government's expecting a rather large deficit for this year, and that's not factoring in the the new spending that's expected to be announced in in this upcoming budget. So remember, the Liberal promise in the campaign, Roger, was that uh, you know 10 billion in deficits for a couple of years, and then. Uh, that would be good, good to go, back into surplus. Everything would be fantastic. Oh, yeah. Can't wait. And you know what? I, the way I read into this, and, and we've got John Iveson on hold, but maybe he'll be able to clarify this for me. I, I think the Liberals' plan is to get all those three years of deficits out of the way in year one and then treat us to three years of balanced budgets and surplus. What do you think of that? Wow. Is that too pie in the sky? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just look at all these numbers coming down, and, and it's like, hey, here's $250 million, Alberta. Is Are we going with the 100,000 people are out of work number? Is that is that how we're supposed to do the math on this one? Because I basically look at, uh, you know, while well, 2500 bucks is not a spit in the face, it's not exactly the kind of long-term and sustainable solution that the province of Alberta needs right now. Yeah. So... Let's get John Ives into the conversation, uh, nationalpost.com. Uh, John, thanks for joining us here this morning. No problem. Yeah, Appreciate I think uh, your, your speculation that you might get more in the budget is probably right. In what, in what sense, though, do you think? Uh, well, I think there'll be, there'll be a fund which is um, geared toward infrastructure. Okay. And then, uh, sorry, particularly, I think, for the provinces that were hit by commodity prices. Mm-hmm. Is, is there any in indication of that? I mean, have, have you heard any, any whispers on the Hill? I'm uh, hearing whispers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and then how would that money be doled out? I mean, would that be transfers to the provinces? Not clear. Or not, clear? not clear. I think it's uh, that's still, they're still probably working that out. But uh, but I think they're aware that, um, you know, for example, this all this uh, talk of Bombardier, um, they probably are going to bail out Bombardier with, a, with an equity investment. And you can't really do that unless you're, uh, you know, Dealing equally with with uh, other provinces across the country that are also feeling pain, so so I think um, just that fact alone will mean that they're going to bend over backwards to try and uh, you know and it helps out Newfoundland and Labrador and Saskatchewan too. It won't just be for Alberta. All right. Well, how big is the deficit going to get? Do we expect? Well, that's, that, that's um, you know. So yesterday he, he talked about eighteen point four billion. Now there was six billion dollars worth of contingency uh, in there, so there's a little bit of padding. Um, so I guess they're hoping that it will come in less than $18 billion. Um, and that's just the, the existing before you even start talking about their budget measures. But let's say for argument's sake it comes in between 12 and 15. It's lower than they the, the, the penned in yesterday, but it's still still hefty. Now, they've already promised $10 billion in their platform to add on, to, on top of that. So let's be generous and say that's 22. And uh, I think there'll be a lot. When he was asked yesterday... Do you envisage more than the $10 billion promise in the platform? Uh, he didn't quite say yes, but he kind of said yes. So I think that you're looking 25 or more come, uh, come budget day on March 22nd. All right, and then that would presumably be repeated in the following year. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, the idea that you got one, you get it all out of the way in one year, then <laughs> three years of surpluses as far as the, the eye can see, I think that 
That's uh, never, never land. Well, I'm glad you got the joke because that's what it was for sure. Yeah, but, no, no, for sure, for but, sure. But, but the, um, you know, the, the 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 thing about that as well is it's you know that's an awful lot of money to go into the to the um, to the to the nation's debt. Uh, you know, if you're starting to talk fifty, sixty, seventy. Maybe you ninety billion over the four years. That was what was projected by the national bank. Um, the one pledge that they have that is relatively still intact at the moment. They, you know, they've, they've blown through the idea that their tax measure would be uh, revenue neutral. They've blown through the idea that the, the deficit will be ten billion. They've blown through the idea that uh, the budget will be balanced by the end of the mandate. The one thing they still had going on was that. Uh, uh, they were going to see the, the debt-to-GDP ratio fall over the course of those four years. Um, uh, even in their own numbers yesterday, it showed that the debt-to-GDP ratio was going to go up uh, next year. Mm-hmm. It would probably come down thereafter, but that depends on how much they spend in the budget. And I saw a figure quoted this morning uh, by two economists who were saying that if the deficit is no higher than $22 billion in the next budget and $30 billion in each, each of the next four years, uh, you could see uh, see that number coming down, but that really relies on them being disciplined with their uh, with their spending, and there's no sign they're going to be disciplined. Well, that's what's interesting about you know their their initial promise to begin with, and the, the approach they're taking now, right? That um, you know, on the one hand, we got to keep these deficits modest. Uh, it's important that we we keep it close to to balance anyway. And now the argument is well. We we got to spend this money. It's it's needed that a bigger deficit is is good. You know that's stimulus for the economy. So they're they're sort of arguing both sides that a modest deficit is important, but a big deficit is important. Right. And the, if you remember back to the the Great Recession, the, the the one thing I think the Conservatives got right, you know, and let's remember that the Liberals and the NDP were not arguing for smaller deficits, despite what they say now about the, the amount of debt that was racked up. But the Conservatives put all this money into infrastructure, and then turned the tap off once it was once they felt the the, the time was was done, and that meant that the, the spending was not structural. It wasn't repeated year after year after year, building and building and building greater deficits. I think what we're going to see here is there will be billions of dollars of infrastructure spending, but a lot of the other stuff is structural. It will continue on in perpetuity, and means it's very hard to see how you get out of that deficit cycle. Unless you start um, taxing more, you know. I mean, I think that yeah. uh, there is an argument. I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing in favour of increasing taxes. I'm actually arguing in favour of program cuts and cutting spending. But if you're going to spend more, it should be paid for by current taxpayers, not future taxpayers. Well, yeah. Listen, I mean, that's that's a point of conservative economics uh, for for a long time now, and and you kind of wonder if. This result that we're in right now isn't a product of the liberals just being unwilling to waver on campaign promises. It's almost like uh, just sort of a, a, a different version of um, the, the battle against ISIS. Hey, the missile strikes are great. Our allies like the missile strikes. We're going to end the missile strikes. All these tax cuts that they that they promised during the election, uh, the, the, you know, now they're seeing more red ink pile up. They could reverse it if they had the temerity, but they got to keep the promise for the sake of doing so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the um, you know the really big expensive one is the child. Uh, Tax package, right? Something around twenty-two billion. You know, if you were, uh, if it was real panic stations, you could start looking at reversing that. But obviously, that would be terribly unpopular. <laughs> as would uh, the idea of increasing the GST, which is probably the easiest way to to get a lot of money very quickly. Um, but it seems to me that they're in an unfeasible position if the economy still keeps tanking. I mean, the, the, the numbers yesterday that were presented 
huge deficits, all predicated on an oil price of $40. You know, we, know, we know the oil price is, is less than that. So if it doesn't recover even to $40 over the course of the year, uh, it's going to be worse than we're actually looking at right now. Uh, have, have attitudes in Ottawa changed about deficits? I mean, someone pointed out the other day that, that Tom Mulcair, who you know ran to some observers a kind of a risky campaign, by arguing he would keep the balanced budget no matter what, but he's been awfully quiet about these these ballooning deficits. For example, yeah, he, he's in a he's in a bit of a box on this. I mean, uh, they've had to move leftward on just about every issue ever since the election because clearly. Um, where he was in the political spectrum was just not working for them. So, um, yeah, I think that they are now going to be picking holes in the Liberal position, saying that, uh, that it's not effective spending. Uh, but, they, yeah, the NDP are in a, in, a, in a difficult spot. I don't think um, – well, I think temporarily, over the course of the election, the, the demand for change – uh, produced this seeming acceptance of deficits after obviously a generation of deficit being a dirty word. Uh, it was kind of strange to all of us who watched it. I don't think any of us could have predicted the fact that if you could win an election going out saying we're going to put the country back into deficit willingly. But um, how great that tolerance is. I mean, I've seen polling which suggests, yes, there's a willingness to uh, to make productive investments and see deficits roll up to about $10 billion. But that, that tolerance, even among liberal voters, uh, dipped markedly when, the, when the, the number became $20 billion. So, uh, so yeah, they got a bit of a, a, a break, I think, from the electorate in the, in the election. We'll see how long it lasts. All right. Uh, John, we just have to take a quick commercial break here. We'll uh, continue this conversation on the other side. If you can hang on, please. Uh, John Iveson, uh, talking about liberal deficits and uh, what could be coming in the budget in uh, about a month's time. We'll continue this conversation after a break. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Welcome back. I'm Roger. That's Rob. This is John Iveson, Post Media uh, writer, National Post, uh, talking about um, these liberal deficits. Um, yeah, I'm glad you addressed that sort of polling issue before we went to commercial break. There, John, talking about you know where the stomach is for these sorts of deficits. Surely people endorse the idea of 10 billion dollars, but is that necessarily an endorsement at 18 or 25 billion? And uh, you're saying there's an indication that maybe that's not the case. Yeah, no, I think that. Uh that well certainly the polling I've seen suggested that that uh, even even liberal supporters were uh, you know there was a, there was a there was big support for what the what the liberals proposed you know you borrow you borrow money to make productive investments and you record modest deficits at times of low interest rates that's what was sold uh, you know clearly things have got worse economically the oil prices slid um, um, it looks like we're we're going we're well we are heading for a deficit. Even though yesterday the the, the fiscal monitor came out from the Department of Finance, which said the economy between April and December recorded a 3.2 billion dollar surplus. Um, now it's a little bit disingenuous of the Conservatives to say that uh, they would manage to be able to record a surplus over the whole year because every year the the, the revenues go down and the spending goes up in the last two or three months. However. You know, it's it's a it looks like it's a long way from the 3.9 that was predicted uh, by this government in in November and the 18.4 billion that's predicted now. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of people in the country who are looking at that and just sort of arching their eyebrows and thinking, is this really what we voted for? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, and, and, and you're calling Andrew Coyne uh, has noted, uh, you know, a couple of times just in recent days about how there's kind of a pattern here. Uh, you know, going back to the election, you can look at. 
uh, you know, the fighter jets is, is one that's coming to light and, and other liberal promises that all of a sudden seem kind of up in the air. So how much of it is, okay, changing circumstances, let's cut them some slack, and how much of it is, you know, you guys are, are tossing these promises overboard uh, very cynically? Well, I think there is a, and I mentioned this in the column today, there's a bit of a capacity issue here. Um, I mean, I do think that they're, you know, it's a brand new government. It's, it's uh, you know, there are clearly some very talented people who've made, uh, who've been successful in other walks of life, but there's not a lot of political experience. I mean, you do have people like Ralph Goodale and, and others who are around, who've been around, but uh, but there are a lot of departments with with rookie ministers, a lot of rookie staffers, and um, and, and many of the offices are not, fully staffed up, you know, somebody like um, the Economic Development Minister, I'm told he's only got three staff. Now, most of these departments would have 12 political staff when they're fully fully geared up. So I think that they're under a lot of pressure to try and get things out the door. I mean, there's the inevitable churn of people. I think there are two chiefs of staff who started since the government got elected who are now either leaving government or moving to other departments. So the capacity issue is having an effect on them. They're... uh, um, they're struggling in a, in a period of, of real economic turmoil to make it look like everything's under control, and I don't think it is under control. So, so uh, probably no great surprise that things are not um, going according to plan. You know, in keeping with uh, the headline on your piece uh, uh, today, John, uh, batting down the hatches, liberals are full steam ahead toward a sea of red ink. Is there a mutiny anywhere in the country uh, if um, uh, if the liberals start to distribute um, some of this uh, this deficit uh, too generously in certain certain jurisdictions? Well, I think that there is there is unrest in all parts of the country. You guys will know that better than me, as far as where you are. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing about people who I never in a million years thought would lose their job in Alberta. Uh, now suddenly handed a pink slip. I mean, it's it's clearly frightening there. Um, on the east coast, the um, there was a committee hearing the other day with uh, with Mark Garneau, and the Liberal senators are now completely untethered because they're not officially part of the caucus. <laughs> and he was in front of a bunch of senators, and, and one of the uh, the Liberal senators, Terry Mercer, said this is the government's position on the Energy East Pipeline is BS. And you guys have got 32 MPs in this region, and if you don't get this pipeline through, you're, you're not going to have any left. So there is, uh, you know, it goes coast to coast. Obviously in uh, Quebec there's, uh, there are problems with Bombardier. So there is starting to be bubbling unrest only, you know, 100 days after this government took power. So they must be slightly nervous. In fact, I think... Judging from the rhetoric yesterday when they started blaming the Conservatives, they're very nervous. All right. Well, more at NationalPost.com. John, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate that. Okay. Thanks All a lot. Right. Cheers. John Iveson, uh covering Parliament Hill there for uh, National Post, Post Media. And, uh, yeah, his, his piece today pretty interesting on kind of where the Liberals are at on this. And... How much can they back away from this? Right, Because, you know, you can sort of make a case, well, hey, we promised deficits. It's just the numbers changed a little bit. But, hey, you know, it's tomato, tomato. It's the difference, right? Which how, is, how much can they get away? Well, it's fantastically irresponsible. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, we're going to go into deficit. This is our promise. But to to say why we're doing it and to just uphold the reason why. It's not because you said so. That can't possibly be the case. But it's just so too bad, not for them, not for Trudeau, not for for John Iveson or, or you or me, Rob, but for everybody who has to bear the brunt of this. And Iveson said it perfectly when he said, look, make the current taxpayers pay for this, 
not future taxpayers pay for this. And that's code for saying, raise the taxes to cover this stuff off right now. If you're spending money on today's Canadian, charge today's Canadian for it. The the, the strangest thing about the, the endorsement of this government is that you had so many people basically look at the smiling face of Justin Trudeau and said, yeah, you know what? Not only are you ready, but we're ready to pay for you for a long time to come. And that's just, that's the reckoning. There's no two ways about it. Do I sound bitter about it? Yeah, because I didn't ask for a tax cut. I knew that the economy was in trouble. Yeah, I think the big one, and it kind of gets lost because it gets bogged down in, in economic speak, but the big one to me is that the fact that the, the debt-to-GDP ratio is going to rise, right? The liberals argued that it could shrink, that we could run modest deficits, but over these years that that debt-to-GDP ratio would shrink. That's not going to happen. So I, I think that's a big one, and I think that's where it starts to get away from the liberals. So we'll, we'll see what the fallout is, and obviously we'll, we'll see how big this deficit is next month when we get a look at this budget. We're going to take a break right here. We'll come back, set up our next hour for you. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge, News Talk 770.